One of my favorite epics is the Lord of the Rings series. I, I know there, were, there are much bigger fans out there than me, people with maps of Middle Earth on their pajamas uh, or on their dishes, but still, I'm a fan, right? And so for the slim few of you who haven't read the trilogy or haven't seen the movies, the story centers around these two hobbits. Their names are Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. And where they're from, this obscure little place called the Shire, is much different than where they'd end up. Life in the Shire is comfortable with their little homes built into little knolls. It's like a rabbit's uh, paradise. Their grass is lush. Flowers and trees are bountiful. Gardens are plentiful. And the food, I mean, hobbits are passionate about their food and beverage. First breakfast, second breakfast, and 11Zs all before lunch. Um, not a worry in the world, right? Why would you ever leave the Shire? That is the million-dollar question. Centuries of experiencing these creature comforts has made more than their bellies a little soft. Their, their character was soft, too. They, the hobbits were notoriously um, known for their cowardice, known for their weakness, not things you'd necessarily be proud of. But as we see at the beginning of the story, things in the Shire aren't as rosy as they appear. Gandalf, the wizard, informs a, a, a couple of hobbits that their beautiful world is in grave danger. And he invites Frodo and Sam on this incredible uh, journey with a colossal mission. The mission involves rescuing the world from certain peril. But, uh, but it also includes a maintaining a fair share of hope of setting things right again. We're continuing to look at the, at the topic of hope. Today, the question we want to ask is, how does, how does hope actually change us? Just like the, the fictional characters um, in Frodo and Sam needed growth, we're asking, you know, how does hope in all the experiences that go with it, actually change us, actually grow us and mature us. Last week, we looked at how absolutely critical it is to, to have hope. We looked at small hopes and the big hope. And unless your, your hope is grounded in the big hope, God uh, will be continually swept away by all kinds of small hopes and the fact that they never deliver on the goods. So we spent some time looking at the, at the object of hope, Jesus Christ, and all that he accomplished for us in the past and promises to do in the future. True hope is a confidence. True hope is a certainty in the future grounded in what has happened in the past. So we're focused on hope because the Apostle Paul keeps mentioning hope again and again throughout these last chapters. If you did a word search through the entire book of Acts, seven of the nine times hope gets mentioned are in these last five chapters, chapters 23 through 28. Throughout these final chapters, as we'll see, Paul's defending himself again and again, saying it's because of hope. My hope in the resurrection of the dead, my hope in God and my hope in the restoration of all things. That's why I'm on trial. So last week at his, at his first trial, we, we saw hope in front and center. 
This trial was between uh, the, the Sanhedrin, they were the plaintiff, and Paul. He was a defendant. And, he, and all this was being arbitrated by this Roman official, this tribune, which, um, which is the equivalent of a, an army colonel um, today. So he was in charge at Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 23.6, Paul says in his defense, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And we'll see it again in the next chapter, um, chapter 24. The first trial ended with uh, not so well, like a, a lot of violence, a lot of shouting. Um, it was so bad that the tribune dragged Paul back into the, to the barracks um, because he was afraid for Paul's life. And I'm skipping over uh, a, a, the second half of chapter 23, but Luke tells us that there was actually a plot to kill Paul. Um, his, his nephew actually hears about it, finds out, was able to arrange this uh, private meeting with, with the tribune. Um, the tribune secretly gets Paul the heck out of Dodge and, and sends him with 200 soldiers, with 200 soldiers, to Governor Felix up on uh, this coastal town called Caesarea. So Felix says, you'll get your hearing when, when your accusers arrive. So Five days later, the, the council shows up and the hearing begins. Um, and it begins by, by letting the, the Sanhedrin take the stand first. And so they, they say, hey, Paul's been a toxic plague, okay? He's, he's stirred up riots and he's desecrated or profaned the temple. Hear for yourself. You'll see exactly what we're talking about. So over to Paul. Paul's turn. So um, we're looking specifically at Acts 24, verses 10 through 21. Acts 24, 10 through 21. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it, it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither, the, neither they can prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect I worship the God of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without a crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I, when I stood before the council. Other than this one, this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. 
the word of the Lord. So, verse, verse 15 is a key verse, right? Having hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In other words, the other accusations are completely baseless. The real reason I am on trial, says Paul, is because of the resurrection. Sometimes people's idea of, of hope is like uh, the Beatles song, Getting, Be- Getting Better, from the Sgt. Pepper album. Uh, the, the line goes, I've got to admit it's getting better, a little better all the time. You know, I love the Beatles, uh, but their theology, eh, kind of, st- not so much. Hope isn't sunny optimism. It isn't the sunny optimism of, of Paul McCartney. You know, the gray skies um, are not necessarily going to clear up. So, a, a Christian's hope is, is, is a confident expectation in the future which rests on what God has done in the past. And what God has done in the past is he's shocked the whole world by sending his only son to ultimately die in our place so we could have new life with him. So how do we know that Jesus was more, that wasn't more than a martyr? More than offering great sen- sentiments, but mm, substance was lacking. No, the answer is the empty tomb which we just sung about. So, so back to our, our main question, how, how, does, how does this hope actually change us? How does it transform us? How does it grow us and mature us? Well, um, there are lots of places you could look in Scripture. But I thought, I thought um, <clears throat> looking at some of the other writings of this guy, Paul, would be most fitting. So, we're going to look at Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So first off, Looking at that first verse, what does Paul mean when he uses the word justified? You know, so, sometimes when, when we use, when, you know, we use in the 21st century, English speakers, uh, the word justify, it's, it's to um, maybe give reasons for doing such and such, such and such. In other words, yesterday was such a hard day, I was justified for eating that whole pint of Ben and Jerry's. But, but justify in the Greek meant something a little different. Justica, justify in the Greek, dikaio, is closely related to the word 
for righteous, dikaios. So to, to say we needed to be justified meant we, we were all unjust, we were all unrighteous in our sin and in separation from God. So for us, the, the future looked very bleak. Judgment day was coming, is coming. So in our sin, we had zero hope. In our sin, we had zero reason to be confident in the future because we stood unjustified, unrighteous. We needed a justifier. We needed to be justified. We needed to be made righteous if we were to have any hope. A, a little later in, in Romans 5, we didn't look at, but three verses later, uh, verse 8 has, includes two of my favorite words in Scripture. You know what they are? But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the, the only one who was just, the only one who was righteous, Jesus Christ died for the in unjust, for the unrighteous, you and me. Not only that, Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 5, for our, for our sake, he, meaning God, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So through our faith in Jesus, which is a gift in and of itself, he's taken all of our sin upon himself. And in its place, he's given us all of his righteousness. That's what the, that's the, what the word justification means. I'm talking about the great exchange where he takes our sin upon himself and gives us all of his righteousness. It's amazing. So the therefore in verse one is there because Paul's giving us the fruit of our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, dot, 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 verse one, we now have peace with God as a result of our, of our past forgiveness. Verse 2, we now have access in our standing in grace, which is our present privilege. So past, present. Verse 5, we rejoice ultimately in the hope of glory, which is our future inheritance. So past, present, future. Peace, grace, joy, hope, glory. Sounds like a slice of heaven, right? And it is except for that strange middle sentence that no one likes to read. Before the hope and glory part. Verse, verses three and four. Not only that, but we rejoice. Literally, it means we boast in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Rejoicing in our sufferings. What in the world? James begins his letter the same way. He <laughs> cracks it open. Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials 
of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what, here's what Paul and James are both saying. Spiritual growth is the present evidence of our future hope. Let me say that again. Spiritual growth is the present evidence of our future hope. The same God who promises to you know, pull back the curtain and show us his glory in spectacular, splendorous ways is transforming us in the here and now. How does he grow us? How does he transform us? How does he refine us? Through this little road called suffering. Notice how, how, how Paul doesn't say rejoice for our sufferings. He says rejoice in your sufferings. There's a big difference. The only fruit on the vine when we rejoice for our sufferings, like, oh, man, uh, I'm suffering so greatly and I'm showing myself so faithful. That's the, that's the fruit of pride. That's the fruit of, or it can look like cynicism. No, Christians are called to rejoice in suffering, meaning God hates suffering. So, so sh that's exactly what our response should be. Suffering isn't, isn't a Messiah, isn't a savior. We're absolutely right to, to grieve and lament all the forms of suffering that it takes. But here's the difference between God and us. Uh, God is sovereign, and we are not. In his sovereignty, God is able to use the pain for our good. And the good life, according to God, is to become more and more like Jesus. Like the hobbits who were comfortable and cozy in their little homes, in the little nooks, and needed someone to grab them by the collar and tell them, all is not right with the world. So do we. That's how, that is how suffering functions. It's, it's like God grabbing us by the collar. And we can respond to suffering poorly. We can stiff arm him. We can like cover our ears and say, I can't hear you. Or we can respond to suffering faithfully, teachably, humbly. When we, when we respond in those ways, when we respond faithfully, humbly, teachably, Spiritual growth is the present evidence of our future hope. So you name the, you name the suffering, <laughs> you name the form, whether it's a health issue. I've experienced those. Had I never experienced suffering through physical pain or mental disability, I never would have experienced him in quite the same way. 
He's the one who came up with the idea of me in the first place. He knit me together in my mother's womb. It grieves him that I should suffer. That's, that's the present evidence of future hope. My growth. My, my growth in connecting with him. A, a financial hardship. Had I never experienced lack of any kind or any kind of financial uncertainty, I never would have seen his provision. That's, that's the present, present evidence of our future hope. So, I, we're growing as we're experiencing that. A, a relational hardship. Had I never experienced suffering through that broken relationship, whether it was betrayal or you know, some, someone you know, cut me off, I, I, I never would have experienced God for the rock that he is. That's the growth that we're talking about, the growth of our present, growth in the present is evidence for hope in the future. John Stott wrote, suffering is the one and only path to glory. It was, it was so for Christ, it is so for Christians. This echoes what Paul later writes in, in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided what? We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So that, that is the function of suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. The word for character, uh, someone has written, is the temper of the veteran as opposed to that of the raw recruit. R you know, I'll ask you a rhetorical question. Which would you rather be? After years of, of going through the ugly parts of life, after years of experiencing suffering, pain, loss, you name it. Do you want to be a boot camp newbie? Seriously. When you're six years old and you've experienced all kinds of suffering from one degree to another, do you want to be a boot camp newbie? Say, oh, I've never experienced this before. Or, or do you want to be a veteran a veteran who's been through the war, a veteran who, who has, has the battle scars to prove it, a veteran who's not only survived, but, but really thrived, meaning that you have witnessed the kingdom of God actually advance through your suffering. Lastly, uh, verse 5. Again, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How do we know our hope doesn't leave us hanging, you know? 
The answer right here is the steadfast love of God. Stott says, the, the reason our hope will never let us down is that God will never let us down. His steadfast love, the same love that was demonstrated for us on the cross, is being continuously poured into our hearts by the Spirit. He's saying, you belong to me. I belong to you. There's, there's nothing in this world or out of this world that can separate you from me. You are that glued to me. I hate suffering more than you think, but you have to trust me. You have to trust me to use it for my glory and your good. Before they, they stepped out of the shire, <clears throat> Frodo and Sam didn't realize how weak they were. They, they had no idea how sort of cowardly they were. It was only through that epic adventure that the, in, the, in the pain of the journey did they, did they realize, one, what was at stake, and two, how this whole experience, how this whole adventure would change them. You and I have been written by the author of life into this story, the, this epic of epics, the, the epic that all epics point to. So one day, we'll, we'll have a chance to look back on our lives and see the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, some that was a result of our participation, some was, that was a result of just our sheer victimness of being a part of this broken world, this beautiful but broken world. I, I think we'll, we'll all want to look back and see how we increasingly responded faithfully, humbly, and teachably. I really do. I know that that's what you all want as well. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time we spent in your word. Uh, thanks for the hope we have in you. And as, as, as strange as it sounds, thanks um, for how you're using the suffering we, we experience day in and day out from one degree to another for our good and your glory. Help us, we pray, uh, to learn what it is that you have to teach us through it knowing that your steadfast love will never let us down. We love you. Help us to love you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.